Hello and welcome to Three Season a Pod from Provision Advisors, the podcast for and about the global communications environment. Three Season a Pod, a weekly podcast from Provision Advisors, a look at the good, the bad, and the what could be better in the world of communication. Well, folks, I don't know about the rest of you, but somehow, seemingly in an instant, we've arrived at the last week in February. We are already two months into the new year. So we're moving closer and closer through the first 100 days of a Biden presidency, and the COVID realities remain a dominant force in our new cycle. We're going to get into a bit of that and where we are now in today's show. Also, in continuing with our push to be more involved listeners and doers in the evolving communication space of our day, we'll speak with special guest Rachman Branch, the former executive director to the D.C. Mayor's Office on African-American Affairs. Looking forward to that. Uh, as I always say, please continue to check out Three Season of Pod on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. We appreciate your follows and your feedback each week. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at ProV Advisors with an S. And check us out on the web, www.provisionadvisors.net. All right, we're going to begin our show today by looking back at what the fallout in Texas uh, has shown us about just what is a priority Uh, for how we communicate and prepare in the face of an emergency and a crisis situation, Uh, and also just what is the role, what are the roles our elected leaders play in that process. Uh, To start us off on that subject, I will throw to John. Um, As we saw people, you know, it it was, it's easy for SNL to poke fun, um, you know, at at Senator Cruz, uh, but let's not uh, lose sight of the devastation uh, the absolute uh, tragedy and horrific scenes that we saw coming from across the state of Texas. Uh, as we do on this show, we always try to look at, you know, how people are communicating to their audience, um, you know, different different levels of leadership, uh, speaking to the people that need to hear them most. Uh, just, you know, what is that role? Uh, I know, John, you've seen that in working uh, for the state of Maryland. Um, you know, when when you're dealing with uh, an emergency situation, what are those key elements in which um, your audience is looking for and how we communicate to them? Yeah, thanks, Bash. It, it's This is a really good um, case study for us as communicators and leaders. Here we are as we've approached 500,000 U.S. deaths due to COVID, a third of Texas um, a third of Texas's residents are still having issues with water supply because of this event down there. And the only thing people care about is the video of a Boeing United 777 jet and their, and their engine exploding over Colorado. Yeah, and that's, that's what makes news and stays with the news cycle here. And for Texas, you know, certainly you, you, you don't have too many books of leadership that say, you know, pack an overnight bag and go to Cancun in the middle of of a of a disaster. I mean, that's just that's just leadership 101. And I'm not gonna have this devolve into a conversation about Ted Cruz. But the important thing is this is you've got all these disparate sources doing things. AOC has raised nearly five million dollars. Beto O'Rourke is doing his thing. Um, the governor is doing his thing. And all the while, it all seems very helter-skelter, very hard to get your arms around what is the unity of effort, what's the unity of command, who is doing what. And, and here we see it. At the same time that all of this is going on, you've got this unique situation in the news cycle with Fox News blaming all of the outages on windmills. You're like, why does that matter? 
Um, and, and I've been discussing this with a lot of my friends in my college chat from Villanova, and we all debate it back and forth. And, and really, in the end, and this sounds Pollyannish, and I've been doing this lately, but where do you get everyone to come together and say, it's not the fault of windmills, it's not the fault of global warming, it's not Ted Cruz's fault, it's not Governor Abbott's fault. It's, it's everyone's job to come together and try to fix this problem. All right, you've got people who are freezing to death, starving to death, you know, they don't have water, they don't have heat. How are you going to fix it? Um, and I have heard very little in terms of unity of effort from the governor's office in Texas. And again, Texas is a gigantic state. So this is a gigantic problem. It isn't as easily bound as it would be if you were in Rhode Island or even Maryland. But still, with something that's that big, how have you asked for federal assistance? How have you employed, um, you know, as we'll hear Rockmont say in the, in the segment next, you know, who are your ambassadors? Who are you employing to get the word out to people that it's going to be okay? Because so far it hasn't happened. And unfortunately, and I'm not, I'm not trying to jump on the Ted Cruz train here. Unfortunately, the only Ted Cruz, the only thing Ted Cruz did with that ridiculous Cancun thing is take the attention off of the efforts to help people. That's where it's unfortunate. That's where partisan news and partisan politics then played too much of a role in this and that we just wanted to knock Ted Cruz and laugh about the fact that there are mariachi bands outside of his house in Texas, which, yes, very funny. Um, love it. I, not very funny when a third of Texas residents still don't have water. Um, so that's where we need to go in terms of unity of effort to communicate what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and what's that blissful end at the end. Let's remember generating buy-in here. How do you get Texans bought into what you're doing? First of all, I haven't heard a storyline once, so you better start with that. Chris? Whether it's Texas, whether it's ships colliding, whether it's um, some other sort of crisis, uh, I kind of have four things that I like to use, whether it's for developing a communication plan or whether it's advising your boss. And so I think in terms of react, stabilize, recover, reconcile, right? React. Hey, what is the information that my audience needs to know? What is what are the messages that they need to hear in in this moment? Who do I need to bring in, whether it's functionally or politically or whomever, to be able to convey those messages and provide that information? Second, stabilize. Um, how am I able to focus um, through the lens of a hierarchy of needs to take care of that audience uh, that that I'm uh, that I'm worried about, and whether that's amping up the information, whether it's making sure that I get them water and food and federal dollars, whatever. But I mean, the focus is on stability. Second is now recover. Okay. So how do we get out of the crisis and how do we get onto, you know, normal ops, uh, if you will, get back to normal? How do I fix the power grid? How do I, um, you know, get these ships taken care of in the case of Navy collision? How do I build the type of recovery curve that um, I want um, that gets me from stability onto uh, normalcy? And then finally, the last step is that reconcile step, that blame step, that accountability step. All too often, that blame and reconciliation is the first thing that people go to. I get it. If you're a politician, you're looking to deflect. So um, sadly, Governor Abbott went immediately to um, global warming. 
uh, went to windmills, went to whatever. I don't care if I'm the guy or gal, if I'm Buff Snodgrass, a friend of this show who's living in Texas, and I'm three days without heat and water, and I'm having to figure out how I'm going to boil the little water I do have to be able to take care of my family, or if I'm the people that are in there that are trying to make the decision to chop up grandma's antique furniture so that I can burn it in the backyard to either cook or stay warm, do I really care how we got here? I may care in a year um, to, to figure out um, how it, you know, to prevent it from happening again. But in the moment, do I really care? And I think that's what leaders need to think about. Um, so I think if you think in terms of react, stabilize, recover, reconcile, whether the crisis is communication based or whether it's an, a no shit, you, you know, Maslow's higher needs, like I don't have food, I don't have water, whatever the reason, I think that will keep you on the path to success rather than immediately jumping to hot takes and uh, blame, which tends to be the way of the world today. What do you make, Chris, of, of Beto and AOC and all of these other sources, you know, be it, you know, overt or covert sources of power that we often talk about and have taught about at Denfos? What do you make of their involvement here? Is it is it force multiplying or is it is it helping or is it diluting the unity of effort? I mean, I, mean, I don't think it's diluting, but I mean, it's political opportunism. And, and I don't say that to pick on Beto O'Rourke or AOC, right? I mean, think about how pissed off people were when um, the governor of New Jersey at the time, Governor Christie, embraced President Obama after Hurricane Sandy. President Obama, good for him because he had learned from the mistakes of his own administration of and of his predecessor. Good for him. He had his act together. The, the government reacted swiftly. There was coordination of effort. And so if you're a human and, and in that moment, Governor Christie was generally genuinely appreciative of the help he was getting. Um, that d- didn't exist here, right? So you have AOC and Beto O'Rourke and Governor Abbott and Ted Cruz, all of that to me from a communication standpoint, but also from a, uh, again, uh, meeting the, uh, the the Maslow's hierarchy of needs of the people in Texas. Uh, I, I saw it as a distraction. I saw it as opportunism. It didn't fall into my react, stabilize, recover, reconcile. Now, if Governor Abbott would have brought in Be- Beto O'Rourke or uh, a, a different political uh, rival, and um, they would have been there together as a way of raising money or getting people to calm down or whatever, then I think that's a different story. It's a great conversation, gentlemen. Uh, Chris, you are now two for two in 2021 of getting me to uh, put my antenna up and pay attention to communication philosophies. It was, you led with intrusive listening and now uh, leading with react, stabilize, recover, and reconcile. So I'm, I'm writing all of this down. It's just a, a great conversation here uh, and something that we're, we here at, at Three Season a Pod uh, are going to continue to watch uh, as Texas, uh, even though they are experiencing some warmer weather, uh, now they're having to deal with um, the thawing uh, of all that snow and ice and, and the flood issues and water mitigation issues that are going to come from it. So uh, so our thoughts, our prayers, uh, and, and whatever we can do as action items to help with, uh, with Texas uh, know that we are there. Folks, we're going to take a break. Uh, we will be back. This is Three C's with Chris, John, and Bashan. Provision Advisors, we prepare your team for the what-ifs you never thought you'd encounter. Let us help solve your toughest communication challenges and leave your team stronger and more capable for the opportunities that lie ahead. And we're back. Folks, he's the former principal of Blue High School here in Southeast Washington, D.C. 
and was the nation's first executive director to the mayor's office of Washington, D.C. on African-American affairs, a strong advocate and leader on diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in the classroom and the boardroom. We are glad to have Rachman Branch with us today on Three C's. Mr. Branch, how are you? I'm good. How you doing, fellas? I'm saying, Mr. Branch, I rock. How are you? Yeah, please. I'm good. I'm good. Mr. Branch is my father. Like, so, no doubt. Got it. Let's start right there. Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, on three C's, you know, we're always talking about uh, the the foundation of communication, uh, the strategy behind communication efforts. Uh, take us at a you know at a, just a high level first before we narrow in. Why is it so important to to be having that discussion uh, here in our nation today? The pain that we've seen this last year hasn't told us that we have to have some kind of discussion. Then those are the folks I would probably take a hard pass on discussing it with. Right. I think what we see now right now is just the world that is screaming for whatever reason, for whatever, you know, kind of a silo you live in. Ultimately, this stuff isn't fair. Like everyone's saying it on different levels. Something feels amiss, whether it's the poor and rich dynamic, whether it's race you know, dynamics, whether it's gender based dynamics. Everyone's saying on various levels, we see a pattern of unfairness here. And we're all pushing against that pattern, but we're not having an organized conversation about it. But everybody's screaming to different degrees that just, you know, things aren't really fair right now. Are there steps to having, I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, Are there steps to having that organized conversation? Like what would you offer? Definitely. Um, I think the first thing that you uh, kind of, you have to establish is norming, right? And so what you establish there is, you know, um, one one person's belief system versus another, and find where the commonalities exist, um, and then you you acknowledge those and you table them because you go back to them for grounding. But what you really do is just highlight the fact that here are the vast differences, and we don't get into the why they exist. We get into the what can we do to make sure those disparities can be kind of addressed and alleviated. Um, you do that because you know if. And nowadays it becomes very easy to make it personal um, because a lot of this stuff drains into all of our personal realities. We have to get to a place where we say, hey, here are all the disparities. We can't discuss why they exist. We can discuss what we can do about it going forward. Um, You wanna wanna have past be informative for what you're going to do, but we can't wallow in past. We have to look at, you know, creating a new dynamic for ourselves as a nation. And I mean, statistically, you know, we're not, you know, who we used to be. And part of that is because we're not stronger as a nation with a lot of the infighting that we have happening. We get better as a country. You know, we form that more perfect union, if you will, by making sure that we, you know, address things that are tearing us apart internally. So for no other reason, you do it for that. Rock, what does success look like um, at the organizational level and then maybe at more of a macro level? So organizational success, um, in the, in, well, let me put it this way, in the consultancies that I, that I run, ultimately, um, we collaborate on what the identifiers of success are. So it's different org to org. Some more, you know, it's a, you know, if we're on a continuum, some people are further along in their equity, DEI, anti-racism reality, some are further along that road than others. So it looks different org to org, but 
a common understanding, identifying a common goal, and then scaling how we're getting there. Um, and that's just changed from group to group where they are in it, but really just looking at, uh, for some organizations, it's, it's been, you know, we want our, we want our service community, we want the, the client that we serve to, you know, to see themselves in the organization that serves them, right? So, so I work with a school district that says we want, you know, we have a 70% Black and Latino population of students. We want our executive leadership to look the same way. And I support them in how they frame and work on that. Um, I've seen groups who just say, hey, we want to make sure we don't put our foot in our mouth every time we talk about, you know, something because we don't know where the landmines are. So I help them, you know, kind of broaden their lens around, you know, their language and how to be inclusive in their language and not be offensive in their language. So it definitely varies um, org to org. But on a macro level, I think it really looks like um, us being a lot braver right now. It looks like us being a lot braver in the conversation around, you know, equity and inclusion, anti-racism, gender uh, equality. It looks like us being more willing to, to acknowledge where disparities are and then beginning to work on it. Right now, we're still not acknowledging it. Let's go to that foot in your mouth uh, point. Um, and then I'll throw it to, to John. Sorry, John, I could see you going for your thing. But let, let's talk a little bit about the foot in your mouth. Um, I'll just use, again, me as an example, because I'm very comfortable about talking about me putting my own foot in my mouth. Um, I feel very comfortable talking about a variety of topics. But when I talk about uh, diversity, um, equity, and inclusion, I, I feel the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I want to make sure that I use the right adjectives, that I use the right nouns, that I that I talk about it in a sensitive and an inclusive way. But also, I know that the acceptance of mistake is a lot less now uh, than, than it has been before. So for people that recognize that they need to do better themselves, what advice would you give? If I said to you, hey, Rock, I run a small business. I am a little uncomfortable in, in talking about this in a way that makes me and my organization um, look genuine. What advice would you give to, to me or, or other people that have that feeling that want to be part of a positive vector, but just are a little uncomfortable in how they talk about it? Amazingly, people miss this step, but it's exactly what you just did. I, I would approach the work with a client and probably say things, you know, hey, I, I want to be very transparent about the fact that, you know, I don't I, I don't know everything and I almost don't know what I don't know. So if I make a misstep, people in the room, please correct me. because, And I think just that gives you a certain amount of grace because people will say, oh, you're new in these waters. I'm going to give you these buoys and help you swim. You know, I work with whenever I work with, you know, populations and I and I here's an example of me treading lightly now and populations um, that are, you know, uh, Latin, Latino, Latinx, Hispanic, however you want to, you know, identify it. I often walk into the conversation saying just that, hey, for starters, how are we how are we identifying ourselves? Because in modern in modern society, I'm told there's Latinx. I'm told just say Spanish speaking populations. I'm, but then, and depending on the room I'm in, I've heard people say, yeah, I'm not Latinx. That's a Eurocentric approach to my identity, use Latino. I've heard people say, just use Hispanic. I've heard people say, just use Spanish speaking. So I defer to the people in the room who are the decided experts on it, right? Like, 
Some people use African-American. I'm comfortable black. It depends on the people. And so I think one of the things that you do is just defer to the population and say up front, I don't want to be offensive. So tell me how to move in this space. And you'll be surprised how much grace you get. But lots of times people don't want to, you know, defer that because in their mind, that defers a level of power that we have to kind of get over. So, Rock, let me shift gears really quick. I'm going to ask you to put your hat on from back in your days in the mayor's office. You know, and tactical communications right now on an issue that is so important, i.e. the vaccine for COVID-19. There have been a lot of articles out there. I was just reading one this morning in The Atlantic, but the Wall Street Journal and all over the place that that COVID affects um, the black population much worse than it does other populations. Yet at the same time, there's a real problem in getting black people to understand and trust the vaccine process. And this is due to years and years, generations of systemic racism and, and other issues. How do we get um, how do we get African-Americans to the point that they trust the vaccine and they trust getting it so that we collectively move forward? There's a particular set of stats I was looking at this morning that 72% of Black people trust their healthcare provider, whereas only 53% trust Dr. Fauci, 4% trust Donald Trump. I'd like to meet those 4%, um, an interesting group. And while only 19% trust drug companies, 27% trust pharmacies and clinics. So where do we go? How do we get, how do we get acceptance um, for the vaccine and how do we communicate more effectively to a segment of the population that probably needs the, the vaccine just as bad as anyone else does, maybe even more because of the, the higher prevalence of adverse effects. Right, so, so forgive me because I feel like I have one foot on my soapbox when I'm about to answer this question. So I'll try not to you know, stand up on it. It's a couple of things at once. Like, so you know, African-Americans and the issues around you know, COVID-19 are real, not because of our genetic makeup, right? It's real because of food deserts and certain inequities that lead to us having certain health issues that make us more susceptible to the disease. Because of that point, um, the government has to approach this a little differently, in my opinion. And, and I'll, I'll try to be succinct, but I, I liken it to credit. We all understand the concept of credit. You got bad credit, no one wants to do business with you, right? And you make one good payment on time, your credit doesn't shoot up. You have to be consistent with your payments over time for people to want to transact business with you. I would ask, what is America's credit score with Black people, right? And so if we start from the place of recognize what America's credit score is with the Black community, um, there's a there's a there's a reason why people don't want to do business with the United States government. And even as a principal and working in the mayor's office, I was still looked at as an agent of government. So I had to do a lot of work on reestablishing relationships. I make several good payments over time. Now, when it comes to the vaccine, I think the government has to take two approaches. We're going to push the, the 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 narrative of the value of the vaccine. At the same time, we're going to acknowledge and own. Because while, while Joe Biden didn't necessarily do it individually, you now hold the place, the seat. And when holding that seat, you inherit all the credit scores of your predecessors. So own the history of your seat and what it's done. And at the same time, push the, the narrative around the vaccine. So we own the seat 
and on it, the, the, the legacy, you say things like, I recognize this is because we've been complicit in food desert realities and we've done redlining, which creates X, Y, and Z. So we're going to give the vaccine, but we're also going to now really delve into making sure that every community in the country that still is a food desert in 20 fucking 21, excuse me, isn't a food desert anymore, right? So we're going to do both. Like we want to take the vaccine and here's what we're going to do on the other side of that as well. Because if not, you know, we were alive when Tuskegee happened, right? So like, it's not something that is so far away that, oh, that's our granddaddy's business. It's not like the argument people have around, say, slavery, right? Oh, well, you get over. Nah, like, I was a kid when that stuff happened and, you know, my uncle went to Tuskegee, right? right? So, so I think the government just has to own its behavior, which it never has really done. And, and to not only just own it, but say, we're going to own it and we're now we're going to put policies in place to kind of, counterbalance what we've been doing for you know for 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 history's sake like we're gonna we're gonna counterbalance how we behave because we recognize part of the issue that exists in in the communities of the poor not just black communities but in the communities of the poor we realize that we've been an agent in lots of the conditions that are going to almost determine your outcome like we still have this free will piece but we've kind of helped stack the deck that you're going to make decisions to move you to a place where you are a permanent underclass. And that's just the poor in general. I hope I answered it somewhat. No, it's it's perfect. So how would you do it? Like say, you know, we we magically bestow upon you, Rock, the 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 burden and, and the mantle of of communicating around Washington, DC, the importance of the vaccine, knowing that, you know, according to a latest poll, um, 68% of blacks get most of their information or a majority of their information from their own network, 59% from local news, 48% from friends, friends and family. And you've got this at, at the same time that 31% of black people have little to no knowledge of how vaccines work at all. And 41% have little to no knowledge of how they're tested and developed. So you've got an area where you, you can educate and inform and thus vaccinate but you also have a very unique situation where the, the only trust is, is really from the network. And I was watching a CNN story about a woman going door to door in black neighborhoods in Atlanta with just vaccine information. Like, hey, let me, I am a friendly face. You can trust me. Here's what, here's what we have to do for the vaccine. If you were in that position, how would you do it? How do you think it's most effectively executed in order to get this information and education out? Great question. Um so I would definitely start with some credible messengers, right? You know, I get a few credible messengers, but um, so, sounds really hokey, but, but here it goes. I know this isn't free, right? The reality around the vaccination is a multi-billion dollar reality at this very infant stage of the COVID-19 virus. I would find a way to get credible messengers and make sure that some of the beneficiaries of this multi-billion dollar transaction exists in these communities that are poor and downtrodden. So whether that means those are the workers who are administering, you know, the vaccine, because like right down the street from where I live now, there is a, a testing site where they have like 17 tents set up and you can just pull through right on MLK and they swab your nose. Are you hiring anyone from the community to learn and do that right now? Right. So, so you build by making sure the people who are participating 
have intimate knowledge of it by being a part of it. And then ultimately, in these same communities that we're talking about with all those stats you share, unemployment's a high number as well. So there are lots of new jobs with this COVID vaccination testing reality. I don't see a large recruiting spree in these communities of color either. So I would do both. It was I would make sure there's credible messages in that community, but also I would begin to make sure that there are opportunities for the community to you know to be invested in the process by learning about it firsthand, by being involved with it, by earning a living from it. Because someone at some company with a uh I, like all these you know pharmaceutical companies, they're making a hell of a lot of money right now behind this, and that lends to the trust issue that exists in lots of you know, black communities and poor communities around us. Rock, we'll, we'll attempt to try and close it on this. Is, it's a, a great conversation and, and we're glad to have you on here. But when we talk uh, on this show, uh, we're trying to give advice to uh, business leaders, to communication uh, leaders out there. Right now, um, you know, as you, you say, like maybe, you know, the country is, is dealing with it with a reckoning, uh, the, the spotlight is on uh, DEI right now. But I know that there are many leaders, there are many CEOs, uh, business owners that do not know either how to talk about this subject or are doing it in a way that they're just, they're lost. Uh, what advice would you give, uh, one, to those people who claim to be experts in a diversity, equity, and inclusion space? And what do those business leaders need to absolutely look for? So I think the first thing that probably um, I would look at is, you know, um, making sure that your language is speaking to the largest population, right? So, so lots of times we use our highbrow 50 cent words from our prestigious universities, and that's cool, but it excludes a lot of people, right? It excludes a lot of people. Um, for the people who are working in the DEI space, um, don't wag your finger, at folks, right? You, you know, you want you want to find a way to be an ally for the sake of their learning. The shaming piece, I don't think you get much traction with that. You'll scare somebody out of a thousand dollars today, but if you if you become an ally and support their maturation and their evolution, you know, you're making a partner who you know then you know can exact thousands upon thousands of dollars to larger communities later. So. I think it is a it's a it's a slow boil. It is a crock pot kind of process. I think the the microwave process is what a lot of DEI people are doing right now. I'm gonna give you a solution right now. You're gonna feel better. They're not gonna be on your back. You won't make the news. You won't go viral because I'll talk the right way, and you know you're good. And I think we've had a lot of people who who've you know chased the ambulance to that degree for a long time. I think now what we have to do is say, hey, you know, let me make sure that not just you. Mr. CEO who's got it right, or Madam CEO who's got it right. But now I want to make sure that your organization exists in a way that the next CEO gets it right as well, because we've now woven into your DNA these, these values of the organization, not the temporary. This guy's here for 10 years and he felt the way, he felt passionate. But then, you know, the same old same is back there again, and we've kind of gone back 10 years. I hope I you know, made sense there in that, in that regard. Um, and therefore, most of the DEI work that happens in, in, in organizations and corporations, et cetera, um, the, the CEO's got to be invested. You can't do it because it's a look, right? Because you'll do the look 
And then people in the org will, you'll have a, you know, maybe even a whistleblower moment because somebody will call BS on, you know, that ad you put out because now you got a, a black guy and a white woman and they got a, you know, mocha colored baby in the ad. It's like, hey, look, we're PC. Like, you're gonna, someone's going to call you out at some point if you do that. But instead, if you really look at your hiring practices, you look at your policies and procedures, you look at who's in your C-suite and who represents your mid-level management and how do you even farm your talent and where you farm your talent from. If you start really digging into those things, that's when you get systemic change. That's when you get organizational change that lasts beyond any single individual. And it plays out much better than, than that corny ass, you know, commercial that you put out. What you just said right there. I mean, I, I, if I, I want to foot stomp a hundred times because I, I will just, just uh, finish not to derail us, but we saw this huge push in our 20 year career in the Navy um, in which the, uh, the Navy brought in um, the boutique um, diversity charlatans um, who I think sold the microwave solution versus the crockpot solution and all of the things that you just said, language, you, you know, um, ally, uh, you know, be an ally, crockpot versus uh, microwave. It, none of that was done. There were no changes, right? I mean, th there was this sort of superficial level uh, of uh, diversity and inclusion but nothing changed. We didn't have more African-American uh, flag officers. We didn't have a way to grow from the workforce, you know, mid middle, manage, uh, middle manager leaders. Those of us that were white, that wanted to be part of the solution were not embraced at the same time we were trying to embrace, you know, none of this happened. And I'm not trying to pick on the Navy. I'm just saying like, this, this is the difference between I think somebody that's the real deal and somebody that's a charlatan. Um, you know, and I love that microwave versus crockpot. I mean, it, it's so important for people to wrap their mind around that or, or, or else you are, one, going to waste a lot of money and more importantly, waste a lot of time. And, and you know, I, I agree 100 percent. I would even say, you know, for, for an organization like like the Navy, and I don't know much about the Navy at all, so I defer to all the experts, but I would almost I would almost recommend, you know, um, you, you, you invest in your values, right? So I know that much, you invest in your values. And, you know, people will probably argue against the crock pot notion because a lot of people believe, you know, it doesn't last. Like, you know, you're gonna say, take your time and go slow because you don't really wanna do anything. And that's your way of like stalling out the process. And so in response to that, I think organizations, and I don't think the Navy's in, in risk of losing any money anytime soon. Something tells me that they're pretty solid as a financial institution. You make a statement by saying, we're going to earmark, you know, this many millions of dollars because this is a multi-billion dollar organization. We're going to make sure that our investment looks like this. And, and so here is, you know, a hundred million, whatever the number is. And, and this number is going to exist as a funding stream for the first five years. So 20 million a year for the first five years. And that's gonna that's gonna produce you know um, studies. That's gonna produce messaging. That's gonna produce training for higher level executives in the Navy. That's gonna produce trainings for mid level managers who want to attain those flag positions in the Navy. And and then you know after that five years is up, we're gonna re up. And now we might realize that we have to go more robust. So twenty million wasn't enough. Now what you know forty five million a year. But but you have to make these investments because if you're gonna crock pocket crock 
pilot. You have to make sure people know, well, we're not stalling you out. Here's what our investment will look like for the next five years. So we're letting you know we're doing 20 million a year for the next five and a guarantee of at least this much going forward. Then people can trust your let's, you know, let's walk, slow walk this process because they see a dollar amount attached to it. You mean a 12-week study, a couple Facebook videos, and some recommendations that have no chance of making an impact is not the way to go about this problem? Hey, is that what you're saying, Rob? That kind of sounds like that always makes people feel good for the 24 hours that it cycles. But then, you know, somebody, you know, has a, you know, a goes viral with a dance and all of a sudden that shit's gone, right? You know, there's a, there's a new TikTok dance out, so... You know that thing lasts as long as as long as a new dance. So yeah, and I think when you do when you take those steps, Chris, what happens for for the organ for the institution is as many people who want to you know chop the legs out from that instant from that initiative, they can't when you invest the money, right? Because you know we, we got to recognize that lots of organizations where, to be quite frank, what they now call cisgendered white men exist. There is a discomfort around what's new because equity translates to loss for a lot of white men. Just, you know, the translation is I'm going to lose something. And so they're going to, whether consciously or subconsciously, attack that thing. So once you earmark some money and you say it's going to do this and this alone, and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to, you know, blur the lines on this, you know, then, you know, people can take their swings at it all they want, but they recognize this is going to be a solid institutional change that's going to be funded over time. And so I probably need to either get on board or get off. He's Rachman Branch, ladies and gentlemen. He's a wealth of information uh, and longtime fan of this show uh, and, and just friends of ours. So uh, we want to thank you for coming on the show today. Hey, gentlemen, y'all been great. Thanks for having me. You Definitely. Um, you can follow him at www.rachmanbranch.com, uh, a leader. Uh, in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and and we're just certainly glad uh, to have you talking to us, uh, talking to us today. Uh, we want to thank you, truly. Thank you, fellas. Y'all take care. All right, folks, we're going to take a break. Stay with us. You're listening to Three Season a Pod. At Provision Advisors, we specialize in strategic communication planning, execution, and coaching for senior level leaders and communicators dedicated to achieving success. We work together with your team to achieve favorable outcomes amid contentious or controversial issues which directly impact relationships and market identity. We are back. And as we do each week, it's time to look out on the horizon. John, what do you see out there in the weekend? Sean, I see the Taco Bell crispy chicken sandwich taco. Um, so. It's it's apparently happening. I'm looking at a picture of it now. I can't say that looks appetizing, but um, Taco Bell is serving these tacos only at participating restaurants for now in Nashville, Tennessee, and Charlotte, North Carolina. Interesting choices on the demographic. And it's a $2.49 um, uh, little, little bag of deliciousness starting on March 11th. So we talked about the chicken wars, quote unquote, way back at the beginning stages of this podcast in and around Popeyes and how for a couple of weeks there, you know, that, that, that it, there was no, you know, there was nothing else happening on the planet other than trying to get one of these chicken sandwiches and Popeyes 
learned very valuable lessons, at least I hope they did, in terms of meeting, uh, meeting that demand, uh, understanding how something can go viral, and then being able to, um, to withstand that subsequent demand for your product. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the messaging they had to do in and around like fights at restaurants for cutting in line. And it almost turned into a situation where it hurt their brand. It made them uber popular at the beginning. And then toward the end, as really the only thing that people could talk about were the fights or the lack of availability, suddenly they turned an opportunity into a threat. And I, I'm going to watch this very closely. Number one, I think it's disgusting. Um, I, I can't remember the last time I ate something from Taco Bell. Um, but you know, I, I find this interesting that this is the next group, this next company to enter the chicken wars, and it's a taco company. Um, will this work? Will it turn into the same Popeyes-like scenario that we saw a couple of years ago? We'll see. But um, a pretty interesting uh uh, delicacy coming out here on March 11th. If you're in Charlotte or Nashville, give it a taste test and give us a review. But that's what I'm watching, how Taco Bell will handle this, how they will roll it out. If it's successful, how will they how will they capitalize on the success so that their brand remains in good standing by seeing the downfalls that, that almost hit Popeyes when they did theirs? Yo quiero pollo Taco Bell, question mark, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> no, no gusto. Chris, over to you. Well, first off, I have to say as the chubbier, less health conscious member of the Three C's team, I am going to keep down with some Taco Bell crispy chicken sandwich taco. I mean, I I am intrigued. I, am I, I, I see this as like we're driving back from from uh yeah from Port St. Lucie. Instead of going to Dairy Queen for a blizzard, we're gonna hit up some crispy I, chicken tacos. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I am not so quick to throw this out, John. I'll just leave it, I'll leave it there. I mean, I appreciate the communication um, insight that you had, but all I can think about is like, is that a three beer sandwich or a four beer sandwich? Like, I'm pretty excited about this. So, you know, anyway, I'll move, I'll move on. Um, I am looking at, there was a great article in Forbes uh, put out this week. Um, They do a regular uh, communication council posting and um, it's called, it's a trap, safely navigating the minefield of workplace communication. And um, the author lays out a chart, a a love chart about communication. She talks about on the x-axis, logical complexity versus emotional complexity. And um, we'll include the article, but it's this idea of like, how do you, how do you maximize technology and what technology platforms to communicate logically, communicate emotionally, and then, you know, how do you do both? Um, and she places it in the context of the pandemic and and um, the likely future of telework. So I am interested not just in this article, which we'll share, as I said, but in the longer and the more um, widespread this work from home, um, telework uh, environment grows, 
how will communication grow, right? I mean, we all have talked about Zoom fatigue and how quickly, um, you know, Zoom happy hours and things like that fell off, fell by the wayside. And, you know, what's acceptable to communicate over um, over text versus what's what should you be on a Zoom call on the phone? And we have these discussions within our, our own group based on our own dynamics. So that's what I'm going to watch, not just over the next week, but over the next several weeks um, as we inch towards a year uh, of, uh, of, of the pandemic. Uh, last point in my Facebook, um, memories, uh, reminder today popped up. It was a year ago today that the three of us got together. We took some pictures for our website. It was a great day. I mean, we got to dress up and we had a great photographer and she took some pictures for us uh, around Annapolis. And it's hard to imagine that like in my mind, that's kind of one of the last memories of quote unquote normalcy, um, so as this year turns into a year and a third, a year and a half, maybe two years, how, how is communication going to continue to evolve? So that, that's what's on my, uh, my horizon. Chris, I'm sitting here shaking my head. I, I can't believe that was, that was a year ago. Uh, and you're right. It was such a beautiful day out there. Uh, we were walking around Annapolis. It was, it was quiet. The air was crisp, uh, and the sun was shining. Uh, and I, I tell you what, I, I look forward to to a time when we can do that again uh, real soon. Um, as I look out uh, on the horizon on the week ahead, well, actually, first, let me let me say this um, here at, at Three Season of Pod and, and Provision Advisors. Um, we are we, we enjoy being out on the golf course. We enjoy, um, you know, the, the history of golf uh, and, and also uh, the importance and legacy of of one Eldrick Tiger Woods, uh, and we just uh, you know definitely want to wish him well. Uh, it's something that um, you know we all paid attention to and talked about uh, as it happened, and um, you know just um, you know as fans, uh, as, as fans of Tiger Woods, as fans of the of the golf uh, game, uh, we do wish him him well and thinking about uh, his family at this time. Um, for my on the horizon, I want to reflect back on our last blog post uh, surrounding Black History Month and the critical need to move forward as a nation uh, when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, much like our guest Rockman Branch was speaking about today. Um, come next week, we will celebrate Women's History Month in March. And while it's absolutely prudent and necessary to highlight and recognize the historical achievements, courage, and strength of women throughout our history, I just hope that it's not bookended by the start of April. Folks, that's our show for today. We appreciate you joining us for the conversation. As always, remember to find and subscribe to Three Season a Pod on all of your podcast platforms. And if you're looking for more information as your business or organization navigates the communication environment, feel free to reach out to us at provisionadvisors.net, where you can also sign up to receive our weekly update delivered straight to your inbox each and every Sunday morning. In the meantime, be safe, wear a mask, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Three C's in a Pod. Have a great week.